Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to talk today to Frank Turek, which I'm very excited about. He is an award-winning author and he's written several books, including I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And his latest, which is what we're going to talk about today, is called Hollywood Heroes. He hosts a weekly TV program broadcast to 32 million homes. Like, I guess he's a big deal, bigger than me. Glad to have him on. Frank, welcome. Hey, it's great to be on, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So first of all, you wrote this book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God with Your Son, Zach. Correct? Did. Yeah. In fact, he is actually in the United States Air Force as an intelligence officer, but he already got his uh, seminary degree from the same seminary, seminary from which I graduated, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, and uh we are both into apologetics, giving evidence for the faith. And he's such a movie buff that we got hmm. together at one point and I said, Zach, you know so much about these movies. I'm sure so many of these movies actually point to the ultimate hero. And that ultimate hero, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. And it turns out they do, Bill. When you look at some of the most famous movies of all time, they actually point to Jesus. And your son sounds like a very impressive young man. Did he ever say to you, Dad, have you gotten your homework done yet? <laughs> well, as we as we tried to write this book, there was a lot of back and forth like, hey, we have to meet our deadline. You know, it's hard to do that sometimes when you're yeah. both working full time. Yeah, I've always thought that there's so many scripts in Hollywood that are ripping off the Bible because there always seems to be good and evil. And I especially think of that around the summer blockbuster time when the villain is so awful. He's so he or she is so one-dimensional, you hate them so much that at the end of the movie, when they're utterly destroyed, the the audience usually cheers in the movie theater. Yeah, the audience knows the difference between good and evil. Uh, and regardless of, of what the movie makers are trying to do, the audience intuitively understands who the good guys, guys are and who the bad guys are. Why? Because God has written good and evil on our hearts. In fact, this whole Star Wars series, which is one of the series we look at in the book Hollywood Heroes, uh, George Lucas, who wrote that whole series, admits the force is, is morally neutral. You know, it doesn't it's an impersonal force, so it doesn't say what's right and what's wrong. But the audience who's watching the movie, they know what's right and what's wrong. That's why they root for the Jedi and against the Sith. Frank, let's go back to your roots. Uh, what was your superhero, and and then who did Zach like? Oh well, my probably my favorite superhero is Iron Man. Okay, and uh, there's a lot in Iron Man that actually points toward uh, so many biblical lessons. Actually, and Zach likes them all. I mean, he he. If you were to ask him what who his favorite uh, what his favorite movie series was, he'd probably have to say Star Wars because. Look, when when I grew up, 
I was 15 years old when the first Star Wars movie came out. Yeah. He, the first <laughs> movie he really went to the theater to see was, was, I think, Phantom Menace, and people were dressed up in costumes, and he wound up actually reading more books than watching the movies. You know, there's this whole underworld out there of Star Wars books. Yeah. And he probably he's probably read nearly all of them, so he would probably say Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you haven't asked me what my, my favorite is, but I will tell you, I share a, uh, a property with a, a superhero sort of guy. I, too, had an accidental dose of gamma radiation, so you don't want to make me mad. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you the Hulk or what? Uh, the Hulk, exactly. The Hulk, yeah. actually. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the culture's obsession with superheroes and mm-hmm. how that reflects our desire for something only God can do and make it right in the yeah. end. Yeah, well, we all want to be extracted from this world of pain and suffering. And we all know, regardless of our worldview, Bill, that the world is messed up, that things just aren't right. So what we what we want is we want someone to rescue us and to take us mm-hmm. to the so-called promised land, to a place where we can live happily ever after. And that's what superheroes do. They come and rescue us and make us safe, bring us to a place where pain and suffering don't exist so we can all live happily ever after. Well, that's what Jesus is ultimately going to do. He's already defeated evil by dying on the cross for our sins, but it's not actually going to be completely defeated until God comes back, Jesus comes back, and he quarantines evil in a place called hell, and he, he creates a new heaven and new earth so we can live happily ever after with no pain, no suffering, no tears, no regrets. And, Frank, we can't pretend these movies aren't popular because superhero movies dominate the list of the top 25 grossing movies of all time. Yeah, it's amazing. When you look at the list, Bill, um, about half of the top 25 movies are, are superhero movies. And I think 23 out of the 25 or 22 out of the 25 are fantasy movies. Hmm. In other words, they're all dealing with the supernatural or paranormal. There's only a couple on there that don't, like Titanic is one, and I think Gone with the Wind is another. All the rest of them are fantasy. People want to be taken from a reality that they think is and is fallen. They want to be taken supernaturally to a new place, to a new world. And that's what all of these superhero movies tend to do. Mm -hmm. Frank Turek is my guest. His book is Hollywood Heroes. Not out yet, but he wrote it with his son, Zach Turek. And if you want to go to hollywoodherobook.com, you can pre-order it right there. And if you do pre-order it there, you will get the audio copy of the book for free thrown in. So that's a really a good deal. That's right, Uh, Bill. It's, it's a, it's actually HollywoodHeroesBook.com. HollywoodHeroesBook.com. That would be my first mistake I've made in this interview. Ever. And maybe ever. Yeah, ever. thank That's you for pointing that out. That's the first mistake ever. Thank you for pointing that out. All right, you use an incident from Spider-Man's life to illustrate how God allows evil. Tell us about that. Yeah, in fact, in the, in the Spider-Man series, there's a point when Spider-Man gets his, Peter Parker gets his his superpowers, and all he's doing, Bill, is he's using it uh, to help himself. He's using it to to win money. He's using it to impress girls, that kind of thing. He's not thinking about actually helping people with his superpowers until an evil event occurs. His uncle Ben at one point says to him, with great power comes great responsibility. And a little bit later that night, through a long series of events, 
His his uncle Ben is murdered. In fact, his uncle Ben is murdered by a guy that Spider-Man could have stopped and he chose not to. And so after he sees his uncle die in his arms, uttering the words with great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man is transformed. He goes from a selfish teenager to someone who is going to help fight evil in the world. Without that evil event happening in his life, he never would have become the superhero he did become. Sometimes you can actually see evil bring forth good, and in this case, you could. Mm-hmm. Frank, uh, talk a little bit about Captain America and what makes him so unique, and can we connect some dots from Captain America and how it even relates to Jesus? Yeah, Captain America has a unique characteristic that most superheroes don't have. Captain America is morally good from the beginning. He doesn't experience any moral improvement, Bill. You know, most superheroes have to. Uh, Say like Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark. Tony Stark is a selfish playboy when he starts out, right? Mm -hmm. You don't think he's going to do anything for anybody. But by the end of Endgame in the Avengers series, Tony Stark is the one that sacrifices himself to save the world. He, He actually does the Jesus sacrifice where he gives up his own life to save the world. But you never have to worry about what Captain America is going to do. Captain America, like Jesus, is morally good from the beginning. Now, of course, there's a difference between Captain America and Jesus. Jesus is morally perfect. Captain America isn't. Captain mm-hmm. America still has some of his, you know, he, he, he can be too self-righteous and, and that kind of thing. But you never have to worry about what Captain America is going to do because He is morally good from the beginning. He doesn't need any moral development, and neither does Jesus, right? Jesus grows in knowledge, according to Luke 2, but he doesn't grow in morality. He's morally perfect from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So let's stay with Iron Man. Tony Stark had some kind of device implanted in his chest to guard his heart. So in your book, Hollywood Heroes, you say that's a great reminder of a life-changing biblical principle. What is it? Yeah, Bill, If uh, other than the gospel itself, I think the most important verse in the entire Bible is actually from the book of Proverbs, for today's culture anyway. It's Proverbs 4.23, where Solomon says this, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Above all else, Bill, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. It doesn't say follow your heart. And in fact, in our culture, we're supposed to follow our heart, right? We're supposed to swim every river, right? Climb every mountain, brook every stream, right? Is that in a Disney movie somewhere? I, think so. I don't know. Anyway, and, and and so we're just supposed to follow our feelings. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says guard your heart because if you follow your heart without moral restraint, you're going to ruin yourself and ruin others. I mean, look at people who follow their heart into drugs or yeah. pornography or adultery or greed. Are they free or are they slaves? Slaves. Yeah, they're slaves to those things. Yeah. You, if, if you don't restrain things you want to do, if you don't guard your heart, you're going to destroy yourself and destroy others. And there's a there, there there's such a, a visual picture of this. Of course, when Solomon's talking about his the heart, he's not talking about the physical organ pumping blood in the middle of your chest. Uh, he's talking about the center of your decision making. But in 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 the movie Iron Man, Tony Stark actually has to have this device planted in his chest 
to keep encro encroaching shrapnel from actually destroying him by getting to his heart, this, this shrapnel. He's guarding his heart with this device. And so it's a great picture for us that we have to do the same thing. We have to teach our young people, guard your heart. Don't follow your heart. If you guard your heart, you will wind up in a much better place than if you blindly follow your heart. Mm -hmm. So I want to take a break, um, Frank, but when I come back, I want to ask you about uh, what does Tony Stark teach us about happiness? He's got this thing in his heart protecting it. Frank Turk is my uh, guest, and we're talking about his book, which is not out yet. It's called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And if you want to learn more about that and pre-order a copy, you can go to hollywoodheroesbook.com. Com. I mean, I'm sitting here watching my, rati my ratings meter just go oh, way up. So this is great. I love having Frank on. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Frank Turek on. He and his wife had a child, and they named him Frank Zachary Turek. He goes by Zach, but he co-wrote this book with his dad, and it is called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. What a fascinating book this is. It's not out yet, but uh, I love talking to Frank about it. Right before we went to break, Frank, I asked you about uh, what does Tony Stark teach us about happiness? Well, it teaches us a lot. And by the way, the book will come out May 3rd, but if they pre-order the book now, if anyone does at HollywoodHeroesBook.com, we're going to send you the audio book for free. And I just recorded the audio book about a month ago. It was actually fun to record because you kind of relive the movies reading the book. And one of the things you learn about happiness is that it doesn't come via sex, money, or power, the three things that can derail any of us. Those are three good things, by the way, sex, money, and power. But they're so good that sometimes we'll take shortcuts to get them, and it can cause us, quite obviously, to destroy ourselves and destroy others when we sin to get those things. Now, Tony Stark, as you know, Bill, he has all of it. Oh, yeah. He, he can get the women. He, he has the power. He has the money. And he's still empty inside. In fact, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr., who, as you know, plays the character— his his own life kind of parallels Tony Stark. We point this out in the book, Hollywood Heroes, that if there ever was a Hollywood actor who fit the role that he's playing, it would be Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark. He knew how to play the role because much of his own life mirrored that. Now, he has everything he wants in life, but he's empty inside. He's spiritually dead, as Robert Downey Jr. admitted. Mm -hmm. And the only way that he can really get meaning in life is to find out a purpose, to, to, to fight for something bigger than himself. Now, we as Christians know that is that we want to be a part of the greatest story ever told. We want to be we want to be engaged in the gospel, the greatest mission ever, and that is to invite as many people into the kingdom as we can so all of us can enjoy God and one another forever. What purpose could be greater than that? Now, obviously, the Iron Man movies don't go into the kingdom of God, but they are really uh, talking about that the fact that we need to save the world from evil. And that's what Tony Stark ultimately does to find meaning in life. But he doesn't get it from sex, money, and power, and neither will we. Yeah, good point, Frank. All right, I, I've heard this more than once from Christians that, are, you know, A, they're weary of engaging in popular culture things. 
Hollywood very seldom respects or reflects their values. But when you get a movie like Harry, the Harry Potter series, how does your book Hollywood Heroes address this? Yes, I know a lot of Christians uh, boycotted the Harry Potter series because of the witchcraft involved. And look, every parent needs to make their own decision on that. However, I do want to say this, that uh, Harry Potter, believe it or not, has more parallels to the Christian worldview and Jesus himself than virtually any other movie series we cover in the book. And here are the movie series we cover. Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, and Wonder Woman. We cover those movie franchises in the book Hollywood Heroes. And when you look at the Harry Potter series, actually J.K. Rowling, who wrote that whole series, as you know, says that this is really was, was based on a lot of Christian principles. Uh, particularly the Harry Potter character is a savior, Bill. He actually dies for his friends and then resurrects from the dead. He is also uh, prophesied to be the savior in the book. He also has a moral component that makes him morally uh, uh, more perfect than the other people in the series. And as I say, he ultimately acts as a sacrifice to save his friends and then resurrects from the dead. These are all aspects of the Christian worldview. Now, I understand why some parents are concerned about the witchcraft in there, but look, there's there's witchcraft in the in the Lord of the Rings series, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Gandalf is a is a wizard, right? Uh, even have it in the Chronicles of Narnia series. This is all meant to be fantasy. It's not meant to say that these things really do exist and that you can say a ride around on a broomstick or that you can levitate a spaceship as in the Star Wars theory series with your mind. This is meant to be fantasy. So if you can separate out the fantasy aspects of it and say, hey, look, so many people love the Harry Potter series. You can direct those people who might not normally be interested in Christianity. You can get them interested in Christianity by talking about the but by, by talking about the Harry Potter story or these other movies. Mm. You bring up Lord of the Rings and didn't Tolkien convince C.S. Lewis that Christianity was the true myth? Yeah, he what did. What does that mean? In fact, yeah, Tolkien, the, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, and, and C.S. Lewis were, were buddies. They were friends. And uh, Tolkien at one point said to Lewis, you know, you, you're, you're really enthralled with these pagan stories about dying and rising gods, these sacrificial gods, except when it's in the gospel, except when it's in the New Testament. And Tolkien went on to it to convince Lewis that all these other pagan stories are just myths, but Christianity is the true myth. It actually came true that there that God came to earth and died to save sinners from their punishment. That's actually true. And then, as you know, Lewis spent the rest of his life basically uh, pointing out the evidence that that was true, in addition to writing uh, fantasy works like the Chronicles of Narnia. Frank, let's talk Batman, because I I like Batman growing up, and Mm -hmm. he seems to be constantly uh, fighting for justice in Gotham, but he's not doing very good. It seems like he's fighting a losing war. Why is he losing? What does that say about us and human nature? Yeah, that's a good question, because Batman is a very realistic series in the sense that it points out that human nature is depraved, that no matter how often Batman locks up bad guys, he's not going to create utopia Mm -hmm. because it's in 
human nature to be selfish. In fact, I always ask people, what's, is, it, is it easy to be bad or easy to be good? Well, it's easy to be bad, right? It's easy to be selfish. It's hard to be good. And so Batman is fighting for justice in Gotham, and that's a noble thing to do, but he's never going to create a utopia in Gotham because just locking up bad guys isn't going to solve the problem. It's on all of our hearts that we're selfish, and there's only one solution to that, and that is the Savior himself. Mm-hmm. So I remember Batman and Super versus Superman, and okay, first of all, Ned Beatty and Gene Hackman, what a great Lex Luthor and Otis, right? Right. What a great combo. But Lex Luthor is mad that God, does, that God doesn't stop evil. So why doesn't God stop evil? Yeah, it's interesting. In the Batman versus Superman movie, a movie that a lot of people hated because they didn't want to see Batman fighting Superman. But actually, that movie, Bill, has some amazing, uh, amazing points in it that it makes through the film. It actually answers the question, why does God allow evil? And the answer is, why, why does God allow evil? First of all, because we have free will. And if God were to stop evil every time we wanted to do it, we wouldn't have free will, right? And the reason we have free will is we can love. Evil gives us, I should say, free will gives us the ability to love, but it also gives us the ability to do evil. And God knew that he could redeem evil and have a moral universe by giving us free will but he thought that would be better than having a robot world where we wouldn't have free will. So he gives us free will. And it's interesting in the movie, uh, the Batman versus Superman movie, Bill, Lex Luthor actually is mad that is he's mad that God hasn't stopped or didn't stop his own father from abusing him. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's taking it out on Superman, who is sort of the God of this world. He's, he's saying you're a bad God because you're not stopping all the evil in the world. But notice Notice this, Bill. Lex Luthor is not mad about God stopping him, Lex Luthor, from doing evil. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, he's he he's fine with God allowing him to do evil to Superman and Lois Lane and Batman and all these people. But he's mad that God allowed his father to do evil to him. Well, look, you can't have it both ways. If you want the free will to do evil, you've got to be open to people having the free will to do evil against you. Yeah. Frank, let's discuss Wonder Woman. Uh, remind me again what her unique superpower was, and does it line up with Christianity? Yeah, well, actually, her unique superpower is love. Two things, love and truth. You know, she's got the lasso of truth, which gets people to tell the truth. And in one of her movies, uh, I think it's Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Woman uh, 1984, she actually takes down the villain through love by trying to convince him he's wrong and asking him to repent rather than using her powers to, to slay him. Because you see, it, she's not really just fighting one evil Superman. In this movie, she's fighting sinful human nature. And that's what the movie is all about, how sinful human nature and greed causes us to fight one another. And so she convinces the main villain, a guy by the name of Max Lord, to give up his power to try and get more and more for himself. So he repents of that, and that's how she saves the world. Mm. He, she actually gets Max Lord to repent of his greediness through love and truth. Yeah, and Frank. that's one of the things we're supposed to do as yeah. Christians. Amen. Frank, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for doing the show. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Again, the book's called Hollywood Heroes. Just go to hollywoodheroesbook.com for more. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. God bless. See you. you. Bet. Frank Turk's been my guest. Hollywood Heroes. We'll take a short break and be right back.
the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Greg Hennington with me again. We're always uh, anxious to get back into God's Word, and right now we're doing an overview of First and Second Peter. Looking forward to getting back into it. this particular passage today. Is uh, always a little challenging for us. This is out of First Peter chapter three, verses one to twelve, and we're going to dig in with our our teacher and friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. Greg, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Well, welcome to our study of First and Second Peter as we look at First Peter three. Verses 1 to 12, these verses are about relationships and how Christ's followers are to live in a world which often does not treat people with dignity. Some of these verses are about marriage, and although I have spent most of my life as a single man, but now married, and there are some points uh, in this lesson for both a single and married person, which I hope will give us some encouragement about treating others uh, in a righteous way. You know, by the way, I've always been intrigued by the word righteous because it's... um, it gained great popularity in the 60s when it slowly moved across America from the surfing community of California. But, of course, we know righteous to mean right living, and that is how Christ followers aspire to live. The central idea for this lesson is our relationships with others reflect our relationship with God. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, appearance. The fashion industry in the world, especially in the U.S., is enormous, and I cannot think of even one time during the commercial breaks uh, between programs on television where they don't say something about why we should buy their product because it'll make us happier or because we have a new diet or a new car or some kind of a different cosmetic makeup. But back in the Roman Empire, elaborate hairstyles and jewelry were fashionable among uh, Roman uh, women and Peter wants the church to know there is a contrast between external and internal beauty between the believers and the rest of the world. Now, although we cannot criticize the, shall we say, flexible morals of Roman citizens and the lack of faithful marriages, we should know that in a recent survey conducted by USA Today, over 40% of the women who took part in the survey admitted that they had had extramarital affairs. So Peter's advice about respectful and pure conduct in marriage is still relevant today. Purity of conduct, however, will generally not occur unless there is a reverence for the Lord, and the desire to obey God must be the driving motivation in order to have high moral standards. Peter wants husbands to value their wives since women had few rights and were considered to be the property of their husband. Peter encourages wives to concentrate on their beauty of character, which we know is more important and really more attractive than external beauty. And this is a good lesson for men as well today. We are all insecure, and that insecurity sometimes has to do with our appearance because we don't want to appear at a formal occasion looking as though we just washed the dog or been to a drag strip race. I mean, we want to at least to look presentable. So the point Peter makes is inner beauty is clearly more important than any outer beauty, but we do want to present in a way that honors God. Or as Mark Twain once said, clothes make the man. Naked people have almost no influence in society. (laughs) That's a memory maker. So the point is relationships with others, even by the way we dress, reflects our relationship with God. 
Roman numeral two, our response to evil. Before we get to the subject of marriage, verses 8 to 12 talk about the importance of believers living in harmony with others. Our typical worldview is don't get mad, get what? Even. Get even. But Scripture tells us don't get mad, get holy. In other words, lead a righteous life. We've also talked before about the seven deadly sins listed in Proverbs 6. And according to Hebrew numerology, the last item mentioned in a long list of items in the Old Testament means that item is either the best, if it's a list of good things, or the worst, if it's a list of bad things. Now, among the seven deadly sins in the Old Testament, the last one mentioned in that list of bad things, which means it is really bad, is animosity between brethren. In other words, division among people of faith whom we call the church. Scripture stresses unity. Think of the prayer of Jesus just before he was crucified when he prays, Father, may they all be one. That's John 17. Now, does unity mean uniformity? No. Scripture describes unity as cooperation in the midst of diversity. We're all different, and we may differ on how things are to be done, but for the sake of unity, believers must agree on what is to be done. Okay, well, what is to be done? We are to love the Lord and others with all that we have and live the good news daily. There was once a man who criticized the great preacher D.L. Moody's method of evangelism. Moody said to him, well, I'm I'm always ready to make improvements on my presentation. Uh, What are your methods of evangelism? The man confessed that he had none. Moody replied, then I'll stick to my own methods. Mm. No matter what method we use to share the good news with others, we always seek to honor the Lord through our behavior. So here's a question. When someone is critical of you or simply unkind, how are you most likely to respond? Do you get silent and then begin to build up resentment toward them, which might continue for a long time? Or do you consider that the other person may be going through a difficult time in their life, and so you have compassion on them? I think many of us respond the first way, with resentment, although in a minute we'll look at the way which Peter suggests we respond in verse 9. Now, I was the chaplain for the uh, Houston Rockets uh, nine years ago when I met Bill, and when I lived in, in Houston, and I used to conduct the devotional time with players from both teams about 45 minutes before tip-off in the, in the men's restroom because it was the only semi-private room around. It was all seized by the police security and reporters and other groupies who tried to sneak in. But I got to know the security police pretty well, so one day I asked one of them, he was named PC, we don't know his real name, but he said, just call me PC. I asked PC, have you ever had to pull your revolver on anybody? He said, you know, I've been here seven years, and I've never had to do that. Now, PC was a short little fella, and I asked him, so what do you do? Do you know martial arts, or hmm. how do you respond when people cause trouble? He said, well, even though people may be belligerent, I always respond with a quiet voice. Angry people like that usually just want someone to listen to them. So I, I listen quietly, and pretty soon they, they usually walk away. After all, if I pull my gun, then everything escalates. That's a pretty good response. As Peter says in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but, on the contrary, bless them, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. So, we don't want to miss out on the blessing because of anger or resentment. 
And that resentment of others can grow and grow, and what becomes uh, makes you even angrier. You get more and more resentful of the other person because especially they don't even know how bitter you are at them, and that makes you even angrier. And as someone has said, resentment is like swallowing poison but hoping the other person dies. So our main idea today is our relationships with others reflect our relationship with God. Roman numeral three, marriage. Now, regarding marriage, let's go back. I mean, let's go way back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything God created was good. In fact, after creating the rivers and trees and animals on the sixth day, Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And then it says, On the seventh day, God rested. Now, that does not mean that he was weary, but rather the Hebrew word for rested means he was finished. So 3.3 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. These words provide the basis for the command that God would later give to the Israelites to rest from their normal labor on the seventh day, the seventh, Sabbath, and be thankful for all God had done for them on that day. Of course, it's still a command for us. A little later, God creates the first human, Adam. The word in Hebrew, which is Adam, can either be used as a proper name or a generic noun, which generally denotes both genders of human beings. So man is given dominion over the earth and even authority to give names to all the animals. Of course, some of the names he gave to animals sound a little funny to us, and they're even funnier when you hear them translated into another language. For example, one would expect an animal called aardvark to be a funny-looking animal. And guess what? It is a funny-looking animal, unless, of course, one happens to be, what, an an aardvark. (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be like to have a Miss Aardvark contest? I mean, mean, what would be considered an attractive aardvark? By the way, aardvark is the first um, what mentioned in what book. It's the first animal in the dictionary. Of course, I don't know if there's any other old-school people out there besides me who actually read the written dictionary in a book to spell words for, for better or for worse. Okay, but that's not the point, and I do have a point. The point is God said everything in creation is good, even aardvarks, until Genesis 2.18. What happens then? For the first time in creation, God says something is not good. What is not good? God says for the first time it is not good that man should be alone. So what does God do? It says in verse 18, I will make for man a helper. Now, the Hebrew word for helper is literally a helpmate who is his equal. Now, here's the question for us. Is everyone called to be married? No, God does not call all people to be married. In fact, we know Jesus was not married. And St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that in his own judgment, not a command from the Lord, but in his own judgment, the married man has divided interest because, apart from pre- pleasing the Lord, he's also anxious about how to please his wife. So, in some ways, Paul says it's better to remain single so we can concentrate on the things of the Lord. However, we know that the majority of people do, in fact, marry for various reasons like procreation, health, companionship, and hopefully a permanent relationship. Jesus says in Matthew 19:6, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
So we do our best in life and in marriage. We serve, we give, we suffer, we pray, we believe in our Lord to help us. And what does believe mean in Greek? Well, in the original Greek, it means to trust, to commit to, to put our weight down on the Lord. And how does that work? Well, God gives the power and wisdom for a married couple to grow in holiness as his agents on earth. And our relationship with others reflect our relationship with God, which, again, is the central idea for this lesson. Now, we don't really get to know someone of the opposite gender until we marry them. Now, I've, I've only been married, married for eight years, but I've found this to be true. I mean, when you're married, all pretenses are gone. Somebody once asked Mrs. Albert Einstein if she understood Dr. Einstein's theory of relativity. She replied, no, but I understand the doctor. Now, what does that mean? Well, consider this. In premarital counseling, perhaps you're considering premarital counseling. It's, it's always a good idea. It's a good idea for the counselor to give each couple a pad of paper and ask each of them to write down three things each one thinks the other person enjoys doing the most. Now, what's interesting is usually the prospective bride makes her list immediately but the man has to sit and ponder for a while. As it ends up, usually the woman is almost always correct about what their man enjoys the most, while the man is usually wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's, and that's not the best way to start a marriage. Mm -hmm. Even though Peter tells the wife to follow the husband's leadership. And if he's an unbeliever, instead of preaching to him about truth, it will be her righteous conduct that will hopefully influence him to see the gospel in her. Now, when I do premarital counseling, I tell that them each of them is the greatest source of encouragement to the other. And when the wife is generous in her compliments, her husband will feel like he can do anything, even the dishes. So as Peter <laughs> tells the husband in verse 7 to honor his wife, I tell the man he can never tell his wife too often how beautiful she is and how much he loves her. She will never tell him, stop saying that you love me. You already told me that. I promise she will never say that. And, Bill, I think that's uh, enough for right now. All right. Let's take a little break. You're listening uh, to Dr. Greg Headington as we're talking about First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. If you have your Bible open, and I hope you do. Otherwise, it's always good to have a notebook and a pen. Greg gives some great notes, and it's always good to take them down. We'll take a little break and be right back. I love studying God's Word and the teaching of Dr. Greg Heddington. I'm always glad to have him back on the program. We're talking about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And Greg, it looks like we're getting into a little bit of a relationship counseling almost from you today. Yeah, we are. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's surprising how many uh, good comments the Scripture has. And, mm -hmm. and we're talking about relationships. And our, again, our central idea today is our relationships with one another reflect our relationship with God. Amen. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral four, relationships. Nice. Okay, now here's a cosmic question. Why did God create humans? I mean, that's a big question. 
From the whole of Scripture, we see that God, for some reason, wanted to have a relationship with the creatures that he made in his own image. That's imago Dei. That's the Latin word for made in God's image. Now, that does not mean God looks like us, but there is something within us that is different from other animals or the angels. And it is something like God. One thing that is different is we can make choices. Animals, however, are driven by instinct. Now, I do not mean in any way to demean your beloved pet, but humans have the ability to say yes or no to trusting God. We also want and need partners. And I'm not just talking about marriage partners. I'm talking about friends and extended families. You know, Bill, before I was married, I don't know if you ever got this one before, but people counseled me with this advice. You want to marry your best friend. Well, if I'd taken that advice, then the wife of my best friend would not have been happy. (laughs) (laughs) We Mm -hmm. live in a very individualistic culture in the USA like almost no other country. The book Bowling Alone by Robert Putman was a, a sensational bestseller years ago in which he basically spoke what we already know, that Americans have become so disconnected from families and friends and neighbors for various reasons, and he interviewed thousands of people to for his facts on this. When God said it is not good for man, referring to the Hebrew word Adam, or if you want to say it in Hebrew, it's Adam, which generically refers to humans, it is not good for humans to be alone. That does not mean all people are called to marriage, but it does mean that to have a purposeful life, we are to be in community with others. In other words, we are to be interdependent and to celebrate the victories and the losses our friends have. We're happy with those that are happy. We grieve with those who grieve. Yes, friendships can be messy and painful And as you know, we all know there is a lot of drama, but that's life. We were built this way, and this is what what the Lord has put us in, and this is the earth we've been given. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit's with us as well. Life is about relationships, and always has been. After all, the Ten Commandments are all about relations with others and with God. And Jesus was our model. How did he live? Well, he served others. He suffered for and with others, and he is the most beloved person who ever lived. And I'm not talking about in his divinity. I'm talking about in his humanness, and I think very few people disagree with that one. How do we know if we have found the right person that God seems to have for us? After all, when we date, we always put our best foot forward. And, of course, social media does not help with that. Although I have to admit, I did have one friend who said, "Eh, I don't put my best foot forward. I I just let people see what I'm really like because if they can handle that, then they'll be able to put up with me. Well, um, that guy's still not married, but I guess that could be advice for some people. Well, it's not finding the right marriage partner. It's, It's not a science, and there's lots of books about finding the right one, but Here are three short sentences that maybe will be helpful. Number one, can you imagine yourself desiring that person to always be their best? Number two, are you longing to follow the Lord as much as you want your partner to follow him? 
Number three, consider the counsel of others who have been married for a while. Now, let me give you a caution on this one. Be sure that you ask that couple to be absolutely honest with you about what they see in you both, even if it might hurt your feelings toward those counselors. Hopefully those hurt feelings are only temporary. Now, I have talked to several people who said they knew they were marrying the wrong person, but the wedding invitations had already gone out. Well, friends, wedding invitations that have already gone out are not a reason to go through with a wedding. As we serve others, as we love and suffer with them, we raise up the name of Jesus. What did Jesus say in John twelve thirty? When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. End of quotation. And he will draw all people to him when they understand what he did. And that's the good news we are to tell others about. So, Roman number five, what is the Lord looking for in a person? Second Chronicles 16, verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says, The Lord is looking for one whose heart is blameless toward him. What are the eyes of the Lord looking for? A person with great talent, athletic, successful in business, makes a lot of money. Somebody who's popular with people or maybe good looking? No. This verse says God is looking for a heart that is running toward him. First Samuel thirteen fourteen calls it, quote, a man after God's own heart. Now, that certainly also applies to a woman after God's own heart as well. And what is that desire that makes them a person after God's own heart? The late Mother Teresa of of Calcutta once famously said, I am just a pencil in the hand of God. Now we know that a pencil can write an incredible story or paint a great masterpiece if it's placed in the hands of the right person. But a pencil removed from the the hand of a gifted designer can do nothing itself. Yet when we're attached to the Lord, we will have godly relations with others that reflect his love for them. Now, from 2006 to 2011, there was a television series that was inspired by the true story of a high school football team in a small West Texas town. That TV series was called Friday Night Lights. And, of course, from that they also made a movie. Did any of you see Friday Night Lights? Or are you watching the reruns now on Netflix? The football coach of that team had a motto, which he would always repeat with his team before they would go out to play. He wanted them to not just follow the motto when they played football, But he also wanted them to live their motto every day. Do you remember what he said? Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Now, he didn't mean they would never lose a game, but if someone gives it all they have in life, leaves it all in the field every day by living with integrity, that's all anyone can expect from them. In conclusion, I've been thinking about how we might rephrase that motto as Christ followers whose hearts are yielded toward the Lord. 
One of the most significant quotations in shaping my faith is the one by the 5th century church father, Augustine, who said this, Work as though everything depends on you. Pray as though everything depends on God. We try, but so often we fail to live up to even our own standards in life. Yet in our best moments in life, we leave it all on the field. Even as we know the Holy Spirit is before us, beside us, within us, to guide us and to empower us. We know we can never earn our salvation by doing good works, and yet we still do our best to follow the example of Jesus, who accepted the reality of suffering as we must, while serving others as we must, as a pathway to peace. And so we suffer, and we serve, and we do our heavenly best. And on that blessed day, one day, in spite of our many shortcomings, on which we focus too much time, our loving Heavenly Father will say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. And so the life motto we take home today, with a slight alteration from the Friday Night Lights motto, is clean hands, pure heart, can't lose. And Bill, to quote uh, what Martin Luther would always say at the end of his sermons, I think that's enough for today. <laughs> I love it. Great. That's perfect. What a great, uh, great teaching time. Thank you so much for this, and I look forward to our next time together. Me too, Bill. Thank you so much, Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.